the world needs Southern Baptists to be very dedicated to international missions and to the Lottie Moon Christmas offering, to which we're committed, if for no other reason, that we will deliver the biblical gospel to them as an alternative to the religion that has been offered. It never ceases to stun me how religion can lead people away from God and not to Him. And that is precisely what's happening in so many places where religious people have gone, most of them in the name of Christ. Well, we're going to fix that. And we're going to fix it all over the world and help um, people all over the globe establish peace and reconciliation with God through Jesus Christ. Now, Jacob in Genesis 28 would have liked to have had some of that. Uh, our text this morning, Genesis 28. Now, uh, there were some others that had peace uh, with one another. Back in World War I, on Christmas Day in 1914, uh, British and uh, French forces had been fighting the Germans. And on Christmas Day, they laid down their arms. And one by one, they came out of the trenches, met each other, shared goods with each other, played soccer together, and uh, celebrated a Christmas service together. Christmas prompted peace between enemies. Ladies and gentlemen, God's peace in Jesus Christ can do that exact thing for any person in the world. And Jacob needed some of that because he was at war with God. He was deceitful. He was conniving. He is absolutely one of the most treacherous characters on, in the pages of the Bible, and especially the book of Genesis. So he was at war with God. He was at war with his father because he had deceived him with the help of his mother. And then he was at war with his brother, having tricked him out of first place in his family on a couple of occasions, and to the extent that his brother Esau now wanted to kill him. His mother got word of that and sent him on to Laban, a family member, where the rest of his story develops. And we find Jacob in Genesis 28 between his home and what would be later another home where he would dwell for about 20 years before he returned back home to bury his father. Genesis chapter 28 then records how God met him in this place to do a work in his life and Jacob would never ever be the same. And you may have come here today with all sorts of fears. You may have come here today with all sorts of conflict. You may have come here today with guilt and you want to make things right with God and you want to make things right with other people. And I've got good news for you in the story of Jacob in Genesis chapter 28. God has a plan for peace for your life in Genesis chapter 28. Let's begin and pick up with verse number 10. Now Jacob went out from Beersheba and went towards Haran. So he came to a certain place and stayed there all night because the sun had set. And he took one of the stones of that place and put it at his head. And he lay down in that place to sleep. Then he dreamed, and behold, a ladder was set up on the earth, and its top reached to heaven. And there the angels of God were ascending and descending on it. And behold, the Lord stood above it and said, I am the Lord God of Abraham your father and the God of Isaac. The land on which you lie, I will give to you and your descendants. Also your descendants shall be as the dust of the earth. You shall spread abroad to the west and to the east, to the north and to the south. And in you and your seed, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. 
Behold, I'm with you and will keep you wherever you go, and I will bring you back to this land, for I will not leave you until I have done what I have spoken to you. And then Jacob awoke, awoke from his sleep and said, Surely the Lord is in this place, and I did not know it. And he was afraid and said, How awesome is this place. This is none other than the house of God. This is the gate of heaven. Then Jacob rose early in the morning and took the stone that he put at his head, set it up as a pillar, and poured oil on top of it. And he called the name of that place Bethel. But the name of that city had been Luz previously. Then Jacob made a vow, saying, Well, if God will be with me and keep me in this way that I'm going, and give me bread to eat and clothing to put on, so that I come back to my father's house in peace, then the Lord shall be my God. And this stone, which I have set as a pillar, shall be God's house. And of all that you give me, I will surely give a tenth to you. God is able to reach down in the midst of any life and do something marvelous with it, as he did with Jacob. And that hope and that promise is organized in this text around what we've commonly called Jacob's ladder. Now, it's really not so much Jacob's ladder. It is really God's ladder to Jacob. And it happens in a dream, and don't misunderstand God. God doesn't need a ladder to visit individuals, but whenever he does something like this, he's being emphatic. He's being public. He is um, uh, making this very vivid and very descriptive that God establishes himself a connection with those who need him, and that's why there's hope for you. And so this morning, I want to preach on the subject, uh, Christmas with condensation, or Christmas on Jacob's ladder. And I want you to notice several things about the ladder. And the first is this. Notice the reach of the ladder. The reach of the ladder. Now, Jacob needed God to reach him because of his family. I mean, Isaac and Rebekah are at war with each other because she has schemed with her son to deceive Isaac. And then um, uh, Esau is at war with his mother because she cheated him out of a blessing. And then Jacob is at war with his father uh, because he has deceived him as well and just told a flat-out lie to him. Now, this is entirely Isaac's fault, as it is usually the man's fault, I hear. But uh, in any case, it really is in this case. It happens to be Isaac's fault. Isaac knew that Jacob was to get the blessing to be treated as the firstborn in the family, which came with enormous privileges, and he tried to change God's will at the last moment outside the hearing of his wife. And whenever he, as a dad and father and husband, did not do the will of God, the family went to pieces. Does any of that sound familiar? That is why men have got to be thoroughly committed, gently but fearlessly, to the will of God, or you're going to end up with a family just like Isaac did. Well, Isaac messed it all up, and uh, Rebecca had to scheme to correct it to get them back into the will of God. Now, scheming is not the right thing to do, and lying like Jacob did was not the right thing to do, but his family is a mess. Well, Jacob did not need his mother's help to scheme and to connive and to trick and to lie and to deceive. He was pretty good at it all by himself. And that is precisely what he did with his brother earlier in earlier chapters where he had his brother sell his birthright for a bowl of beans. A bowl of beans for a birthright. Took advantage of the young man's hunger and had him promise him something, his birthright and all the privileges that came with it, 
in exchange for a bowl of beans. He was an opportunist. He looked for weakness. And as soon as he saw it with his brother, he went in for the kill. And that's what Jacob has got. So he, uh, he's got his own faults. He's got a messy family. And look what happens in verse number 10, 11, and 12. He went from Beersheba to Haran. In other words, he's in the middle of Nowheresville. It's worse than Bogart, Georgia. And he went to a certain place and stayed there all night because the sun had set. He took a stone, placed it at his head, laid down to sleep. Then he dreamed a dream, and behold, a ladder was set up on the earth. God came to meet him. Now, don't think for a moment that Jacob is to climb the ladder, despite the uh, notion of the popular song, We Are Climbing Jacob's Ladder. Oh, no. The ladder does not indicate that we, by our efforts, climb to meet God. That's not what this means at all. No, no. It's not that we climb a ladder to meet God. We are helpless and dead in trespasses and sins. Spiritually, we're a corpse and we cannot reach God on our own. So it's not that Jacob goes up to meet God. The message here is that God comes down to meet Jacob. God is initiating contact with Jacob. Hey, didn't you know that is true throughout the Scripture? Anytime God finds a humble person in need, He comes through and meets that person on His own. He initiates contact. Now, Jacob is not a very spiritual person. He's not very thoughtful. He's not very reflective. He, he doesn't uh, care too much about the history and tradition of uh, Abraham and Isaac. Uh, he may not even be able to spell his great-great-grandfather Adam's name. He doesn't care. We don't find a spiritual word on Jacob's lip up to this point. And yet God comes to meet him. And that's precisely what he did with Adam and Eve. Whenever they sinned and fell from God, they tried to hide and cover themselves. And God came walking in the garden seeking them. And he cried out to them with the question, he cries out to us today, Where are you? Now he's not asking for information because he knows. He's asking for realization. He wants them to figure out where they are. They are hiding from God and they need to realize it. Uh, he, did that with, um, he did that with Adam and Eve. He, he does that as well. Uh, in uh, John chapter 1, when Jesus came to the earth, and that's why we celebrate this season as we do. Jesus is the Word. He's the very image and thought and mind of God. He's the perfect representation of the heart and mind of the Father. He's the Word, in other words. There's as much relationship between He and the Heavenly Father as there is between your words and you. He's the Word. And the Bible says in John 1.14, the Word became flesh. And dwelt among us. Well, he's looking at Zacchaeus. And he explains his ministry to sinners like Zacchaeus. Like us. And he says, For the Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which was lost in Luke 19.10. John is on the Isle of Patmos. And there he has been banished by the Emperor Domitian. And there on that barren island where there's no fresh water. It's got to be shipped in. John, as a 90-something-year-old man, meets Jesus Christ in his time of need. Jesus comes to him and appears with him. And ladies and gentlemen, the first coming's not over because there's a second coming. One day, Jesus is going to split the eastern sky, and he's going to take over everything, and he's going to rule and implement everything he wants, everything that delights him, everything that blesses his people, and eliminate all evil, all wickedness, and everything that causes tears, sorrow, pain, and death. He comes on his own. Listen, if, if we had invented the Christian faith, it wouldn't be nearly as exciting as this. 
Jesus Christ is coming after his people, and he does that here with Jacob in Genesis 28 with this ladder. You know something? He's doing it now with you. He's come after you. He's come after you with the word. He's trying to provide. Romans chapter 10 verses 8 through 13 says that the word that saves is near you even in your mouth. Whenever we preach the Bible, God fills up the mouth of those who need Christ with the word they need to confess. That if, that if um, it says in Romans 10, 9, if you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart God hath raised him from the dead, you shall be saved. For with the mouth confession is made to salvation and with the heart man believes resulting in righteousness. Today is your day. God is reaching out to you through the Word, through worship, through your conscience, through creation, through something said today, something said yesterday, something said on previous days. He's seeking and pursuing you. He's trying to establish a ladder between you and Him. That is the reach of the ladder. And at the end of this message, we'll sing a song and we'll give you the opportunity to turn to Christ at that time and to meet God and be reconciled to Him. So that's the reach of the ladder. But look at the resources of the ladder. As I think of resources, I think of uh, one of the most frightening terms in the whole wide world, middle school boy. Um, and uh, during uh, Merry Christmas Athens this past time, we had some middle school boys, and I, I've been share, told this story, that found a uh, box offering them, if they would sign up with their phone number and email address, they would uh, have an opportunity to win a free trip to the Bahamas. And a couple of them signed up. And one of them talked to me about it and said, I got a notification. I won that trip to the Bahamas, but I've got to pay my own airfare and expenses when I'm there. <laughs> and then it dawned on him, well, what did I win? What did I win? I've been offered a free trip to the Bahamas except for airfare and uh, expenses while I'm there. What in the world did I win with this free trip to the Bahamas. I said, what you won was a lot of phone calls and text messages and emails. That's what you want. But here's how you can return the disappointment to that fraudulent company. This is what you can do. When they call you, speak with them for just a moment and say, listen, I'm just a 14-year-old boy with $75 worth of Chick-fil-A cards. I can't help you. This is a case where the disappointment goes both ways, isn't it? Well, ladies and gentlemen, we've got disappointment here only in one way. It is Jacob that is a disappointment, but God doesn't disappoint. He comes through with all the resources that are necessary in verses 12 through 15. Hey, the first thing we see is in verse 12 is that there are angels. Did you know there's a spirit world that we cannot see? And we're not to emphasize uh, this particular element of it, but uh, when it comes to angels, they, they are all around. Hebrews chapter 1 says that they are ministering spirits and they're doing all sorts of activity and work on behalf of God and the people that we never see and that's why most of our lives go about without incident and without accident because God's angels have intervened in this dangerous world to make us safe. Well, that, this is what appears to Jacob here in the text in his dream. But then there are some promises. There are some promises here and I want you to notice in verse number 13. I am the Lord God, and here he identifies himself, of Abraham your father and God, the God of Isaac. 
So immediately, whatever he has heard of God's walk with Abraham and Isaac, he now defines God in this way. He defines God on the basis of the stories that would one day be the book of Genesis. And Moses is writing this to Israel, and they would think, hey, this is the God that did what he did with Abraham and did what he did with Isaac. So they would think of the marvelous birth of Isaac, the provision of the ram at the last moment for Isaac. They would think about how God called Abraham out of paganism and promised him a land. He would go through all of those stories, and God says, Jacob, to you, I am the same God. Now, you haven't been to me, Jacob, what Abraham and Isaac were, but I am going to be to you precisely what I was to Abraham and to Isaac. Now, did Jacob deserve that? No. Jacob is the least deserving person on the pages of Scripture up to this point. I mean, only the devil could be worse than Jacob. But it looks like Jacob was in a contest with the devil to be the worst person on the pages of Scripture. And yet, nevertheless, God comes through and he says... To Jacob, what he wants to say to you, I'm going to treat you in my grace just like I would treat an Old Testament hero. I am the same God towards you as I was to your ancestors. And that's the promise God is giving you today. And then that's not all. Not only is there there a sameness to the promise, but look at the supply of the promise. Look what he says. The land on which you lie, I will give to you and your descendants. So Jacob is a homeless sojourner now. He's going to get that land in Israel. And then he's single. He's been banished from his family by his behavior, at least the hostility of Esau. He's going to have some descendants. Also your descendants shall be as the dust of the earth. Could you ever count the pieces of dust on the earth? Well, that's what his descendants would become like, that many. And you shall spread abroad to the west and to the east to the north and to the south. You'll spread over here towards the hostile Canaanites, over here towards the hostile Philistines, here towards the hostile Egyptians, and then back over here where your brother is hostile towards you. One day there's going to be peace in all four directions in your life. And your descendants will spread there. And in you and in your seed, your offspring, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Well, right now he's a curse. He's been a curse to his father. He's been a curse to his mother. He's been a curse to his brother. And yet God's going to so transform him. All the nations of the earth, all the families of the earth will be blessed in him. And so it is today. Then he gets real personal. In fact, in verse 15, he has a large number of references to you and your. In fact, there are 14 of them for verses 12 through 15 and they're Stacked on top of one another in verse 15. Behold, I am with you and will keep you, guard you wherever you go. And I will bring you back to this land. For I will not leave you until I've done what I have spoken to you. God promises some sameness and supply. Some of the richest men in the world gathered together in Chicago in 1923. And despite their enormous wealth, And what great plutocrats they happened to be. They all came to a very tragic end. Charles Schwab, president of the world's largest steel company, died in bankruptcy. Samuel Insel, the president of the world's largest utility empire, died penniless, running from the law. Howard Hobson was the president of the largest gas company 
He had a mental breakdown and never recovered. Richard Whitney was president of the New York Stock Exchange. He was ruined through the years and spent the rest of his life in a penitentiary in Sing Sing in New York. Jesse Livermore, greatest trader on Wall Street, and Ivan Kruger, head of the world's greatest monopoly, and Leon Frazier, president of the Bank of International Settlements, all got so despondent they committed suicide. Beloved, you and I have got to have more than the goods and the hopes and empty promises of this world to make it through life. In fact, the more you've got, the more you've got to walk with God, not less. And that's what these men would testify even today. Jacob has what he needs. At the end, he has endured the conflict with his father. He's endured the scheming of his mother. He's endured the hostility and hatred of his brother. And even the deception of his uncle Laban. And his name is great throughout the earth because God gave him resources through this ladder. That's what God did in his life. And when we do the will of God, God commits himself to us. God holds nothing back. God takes responsibility for every person that is committed to doing his will. And this is what Jesus said to those who would have financial and material need through the years because of their missionary service. He said in Matthew 6.33, Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. Seek Christ's lordship over your life first and his righteous standards. Seek that first and all the things you need will be added to you. And that promise is as true today as when Jesus first uttered it. In fact, if you were to call on him today, he would cleanse your sin and forgive you. So there's the reach of the ladder and the resources of the ladder. But I want you to look at the response to the ladder. The response to the ladder. There are three things here. One, there's recognition. There's recognition. Verses 16 and 17. Jacob awoke from his sleep and said, Surely the Lord is in this place and I did not know it. God was with him. And by the way, did you know that's the meaning of one of the names of Jesus that was given at his birth? And they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means what? God with us. The great God of the Old Testament, the apocalypse, the coming day, salvation and grace can be with us. And that's what Jacob discovered here. I didn't realize God was here. Now Jacob probably has some pagan beliefs rattling around in his head that he's not eliminated like his father Isaac and Abraham. He, he's so worldly, he's so carnal, he's so backslidden, he thinks that God is God of only a local area where his father is. And does not realize that God is God of all. And God demonstrates that here. That he is superior to the pagan gods who were local deities. And he magnifies his name in this dream of the ladder. Jacob wakes up and says, the Lord is in this place and I didn't know it. He is here. He is now. He is present. And he is here at Beach Haven Baptist Church today as well. He promised. He promised himself that were two or three. Even that small, infinite, even that small, infinitesimally small number are gathered in my name. There I am where? In the midst of them. I get in the middle of two or three people. If that's all that's gathered in my name. In other words, Jesus has made the standard very low for showing up. He doesn't require a lot of pomp and circumstance. 
What he requires is sinners to be humble before him for the sake of his name. And he says, there I am in the midst of them. Hey, do you understand? This could be your greatest day. And every day you're gathered for him in his name. He is here to cleanse and to forgive and to guide and to save and to show mercy and to show grace and to answer prayer and to give insight and to illuminate, to do all the marvelous promises in the scripture of which there are at least 5,000 in your life, whichever one you need right now. Recognize. Recognize that. But there's another thing. Not only recognize, but Jacob remembered. He remembered verses 18 and 19. Jacob rose early in the morning, took the stone that he put at his head, set it up as a pillar, and poured oil on top of it. That's the best he knew how to do to memorialize this in a spiritual way to honor God. And he named the place Bethel instead of Luz. Luz means separation, estrangement, alienation. That was the name of that place. He called it Bethel, which is house of El, house of God. So in a moment... He went from being alienated and separated from God to being in the house of God. Not a physical structure, but favor with God as his father. And the same could happen to you today as well. What good news. And to remember that, he set up a stone there in that place. And Jacob then had a Bethel, a Bethel, an experience with God at Bethel. Later, he would return to that. And remind himself of the great promises God made of him. Hey, do you have a Bethel? Everyone needs a Bethel where they meet God. You know where mine is? It's at 930 Aspen Court, Lemoore, California, near a naval base. At the end of the hallway in the bedroom on the right. And if you were to walk around that double bed, right there on that spot next to the window is where I bowed my knee and gave my heart and life to Jesus Christ. Do you know that's such a significant place where Christ came into my life? I call it my Bethel, my Bethel. And you know what I've done? I have brought it up on Google Maps, and I've showed every one of my children and my wife where that is. I may show you one day. And one of the worst days of my life is when my parents sold that home. I feel like I lost something, but it's still there. And uh, I, I could go. And uh, fly into Fresno International Airport and rent a car and go on to uh, about 40 miles south to Lamore and go to 930 Aspen Court, knock on that door. Now, this would be awkward and weird, but don't put it past me. Uh, and say, listen, you don't know me, but there is a Bethel back there in the back bedroom on the right. Would you mind if I showed my children and my wife and my whole church family? About four or five hundred of us going to go in. And I want them to see the spot where I gave my heart and life to Christ, where I met God like Jacob did in Genesis 28. Do you have a place like that? Where you met God, Christ came into your life, cleansed you of your sins. Do you know that this altar, this place here today could become your Bethel, where you give your heart and life to Christ? And Jacob could return there to Bethel. And remember, folks, do you know the Lord has given us many Bethels? He's given us remembrances of some significant act in the history of God. And, and they both point just to one thing. He's given us baptism, and He's given us the Lord's Supper. And because of these things, they are Bethel's. They remind us of one thing, and that happens to be the gospel of Christ. They both point to that. Baptism 
reminds us that Jesus died and was buried and raised from the dead. And the Lord's Supper reminds us that Jesus was crushed without breaking a bone on the cross and spilled his blood. You see, our memories are faulty, and we get distracted even with spiritual things. And we forget just how important the death and resurrection of Christ happened to be to God the Father. And so he keeps putting them in front of us so that we might remember. And he does that through baptism, and he does that through the Lord's Supper. Both of which were made possible because of the birth of Christ. Jesus is God. He was the disembodied spirit before Bethlehem. At Bethlehem, he embraced flesh. God became flesh, and flesh can die and rise again from the grave. That's why Christmas is so important. It made Calvary and the empty tomb possible. That's why it's so important. And that's why it's very appropriate to celebrate baptism and the Lord's Supper during Christmas time. Remembrance. And so um, he uh, recognized, and then he remembered, but then he released. He released himself. Look at verses 20 through 22. He said there, Then Jacob made a vow, saying, Well, and, and this is not a conditional thing, it's a conclusion. Okay? Well, if God's going to be with me and keep me and give me bread to eat and clothing to put on, so I come back to my father's house in peace, well, then the Lord will be my God. If this is what God is going to do with me, then I am claiming him now as my God. Would you do that today? Would you claim him as your God? Well, what is a God? Oh, it would be very important to define what a God is. A God is someone that you trust more than anyone else, and you trust him supremely. A God is someone that you love more than anyone else, and love him supremely. Your affections are set on him. And a God is the one you obey supremely. Now, there are a lot of alternatives out there. There are even alternatives in, in, uh, among some religious people. Uh, they trust uh, the Lord to an extent, but still rely on their works and their vir- virtue to make themselves right with God, or their religious ceremony, or what their parents did for them when they were infants. No, you turn from that, and you trust God. You stop trusting those things to make you right with God, and you trust Him and Him alone. And, and then even religious people can love things more than God. Oh, it's, it's entirely possible. They can love money. They can love work. They can love um, entertainment. Uh, They can love relationships. They can love family more than they love God. And God says, no, put those in their place. At appropriate times, all of those uh, will receive your affections. But you love Jesus Christ supremely above them all. And, And then you obey God. And that's what you're committing yourself to whenever you claim this God as your own. We obey Him more than anything else. We obey Him more than our lusts. We obey Him more than we obey the middle class and its trends. We obey Him more than we obey our desires and our reasonings. We never put anything ahead of Him. We trust Him and Him above all. And we do that, and God says in His Word, it is Jesus that He is presenting as the God we are to embrace, to trust, to love, and to obey above all else. Well, you say, well, what do I do this morning to make that happen? The Bible says we need to repent. Acts 26, 20 says, repent and turn to God. That means change your mind. Change your mind about yourself. You're really in a crisis with God. You've got to make that right. Or you've got to let God make it right for you. And you can change your mind about Jesus Christ. Jesus is not merely a casual interest. He becomes master and Lord over all. And then you change your mind about your response to Him. 
I'm no longer going to be secret about him. I'm going to be public for Jesus. You repent. Acts 26, 20, repent and turn to God. In other words, let's just imagine this. Speaking of ladders, we have several ladders in our home, and there's some of those things I trust, and some of them I do not. I've got a couple of ladders I would climb up uh, anywhere on, but it seems that the one that always is handy and always appears when I need a ladder is a ladder that appears to be 60 years old, made of wood, and it is as rickety as it possibly can be. Do you have any ladders like that in your home? Well, whenever you repent, you realize I'm climbing up a rickety ladder and this thing could come apart at any time. And I'm in danger because of it. I'm in danger because of it. And you change your mind and you come back down. You've got to understand, right now, outside of Jesus Christ, you are on a rickety ladder that will collapse. It will collapse at some point before the grave and at the very least after it. And you realize that, you change your mind, you reject that ladder and say no more. But then I've got some in the home that I trust. And I trust that they will bear my weight. Now that takes a lot. I'm a big fellow. But these ladders will bear my weight. I use them. I use them freely. I don't test them. I don't question them. I've got complete confidence they will bear my weight. That's what you do with Jesus Christ. You believe that Jesus Christ can bear the weight of your guilt, bear the weight of your life, and bear the weight of your eternity. 1 Peter 1.5 says, We are kept by the power of God through faith in Jesus Christ. I place my faith in Christ. He is strong enough to keep me and save me and make, his, make me His own. We're going to give you that chance in just a moment to open up your heart to Christ. And why don't you say something like this to God? Dear God, I know, I know that things are not right with you. I know that I'm guilty, but I'm asking Jesus to come into my heart and life and forgive me. I believe He died and He rose again. I believe right now He will come in and make things right with you. Would you please do that? I give my life to you. I abandon myself I release myself completely to you. God, the answer is yes. You do that, and there's going to be a great exchange that will take place. God will take your sin and give you righteousness in return if you'll do that. Others of you have done that, but you need to follow Christ in baptism. Why don't you come today for that? Uh, others of you need to become part of Beach Haven. Why don't you come as God leads you? Others of you, God's putting on your heart to get this message to the world by going into full-time vocational ministry. Why don't you make that public today as well? Would you quickly stand with me, please? We're going to pray, and uh, when we, after we pray, we're going to invite you to come and to respond.